Hi, this is Phil Cullen from Death Lap of the Man Rays. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Vinnie Paul from it. Hell yeah! You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Come on now. Hey, all you rockers out there, this is Oz Fox, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Sweet from Striper, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome once again to Iron City Rocks. This is episode 193, and I am the host, John. We are coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music talk. Episode 193, we are joined by Michael Sweet of the band Striper. Also spent some time in Boston uh, as the vocalist. Striper has just released uh, today, actually, uh, the March 26th. A new album called Second Coming, which features two new tracks as well as re-recordings of a lot of the Striper classics. Uh, for those of you who have some of these other re-recording albums that are kind of popular with bands, uh, this one's a little different. These are not uh, carbon copies of the original. These uh, have a bit of modernization to them. Uh, some of them have a little bit more live feel to them. Uh, similar to how they do them live, uh, To Hell with the Devil, for example, and some songs like that. Um, you know, they're not going to be the exact same thing you had on the original album. So we're going to talk to Michael about that. And we are also joined by documentary filmmaker Jesse Vile. Jesse uh, has made a film called Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet, uh, which kind of chronicles Jason Becker's fight with ALS. Uh, for those not familiar with Jason Becker, he was a guitarist, or still is, uh, a masterful musician uh, who was originally a solo artist on Shrapnel and then did a, a kind of a guitar duet with Marty Friedman called Cacophony uh, and then got the nod to take Steve Vai's place with David Lee Roth which uh, as many of you who are alive in that era know that playing guitar with David Lee Roth was kind of an iconic gig I mean you had Eddie Van Halen and then Steve Vai and then Jason Becker was third in line unfortunately right after they finished the album a little late enough uh, Jason uh, was uh, diagnosed with ALS more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, ALS is a disease that typically kills people uh, very fast, very horrible disease. Uh, Jason, uh, proud to say, is, is alive today, 22 years, I believe, later. Uh, and Jesse has made a, an amazing documentary, uh, a really a film that doesn't make you feel sad for Jason. It makes you feel inspired by Jason. So we're going to talk to Jesse about that. But first, let's play a little bit of Soldiers Under Command from the new album, Second Coming from Striper. We'll talk to Mike this week.
great pleasure. I welcome to the show. We have Michael Sweet of the band Striper. How are you doing, Michael? I am doing well. How are you? Doing really, really well. Had a chance uh, just this morning. Uh, the good folks at Frontiers Records sent me in advance of the new record, Second Coming. Um, it was kind of neat to listen to some classic Striper tracks, but with a with a fresh coat of paint, so to speak. Can we talk a little bit about what, um, you know, after doing the covers album the last time around, what kind of brought you guys to the idea of doing the uh, kind of re-recording of some of the classics? Well, initially, it, the the thought process and the idea was to just re-record the songs to have the legal rights to do with them what we what we wanted to do. Sure. We have a middleman right now, which is Disney, and we have a publishing company, Songs Pub, and when they try to pitch songs to film and TV, sometimes they run into difficulties or it stalls out and the deal doesn't even happen. Uh, this is an easy way to eliminate that and keep that from happening. Um, so that was really our our first reason for doing it. And then as we got into the project and uh, we were really digging how it sounded, we thought it, it might be a great idea to offer it to the fans. And that's when we started looking for a label. Mm-hmm. And we obviously wound up doing a deal with Frontiers. Yeah, and I'll have to say the... Um you know, a lot of bands have done this. I know, um, in speaking to Stephen Piercy of Rat, for example, he had redone uh, Round and Round to the point it was almost indistinguishable uh, for that <laughs> for that very reason. You know, so it could be used in the movie The Wrestler. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not uncommon. Um, you know, I kind of was laughing when I was listening to the album. I'm thinking this album should have been called To Hell with Disney, you know, <laughs> to get away with to get away with well, the publishing rights but we did actually we were toying with the idea uh, partially as a joke and partially serious uh, to call it to hell with the originals yeah that would have been, so would have been we, fun. we almost named it that uh, believe it or not so it's kind close. of funny but then we, we wound up going with obviously second coming and thought that was a classy yeah and, and that's why we had the, the the suits and the ties we wanted it to to look very black tie and yeah. classy and you know this is our uh, anthology, so to speak, you know. Yeah, one of the things that that I enjoy about it is is that you know sonically it does a, a lot to pay homage to the originals. Like you guys still have that, um, I don't know, it's kind of that signature Jackson sort of guitar sound that made the originals uh, quite distinct. But you've also incorporated some much thicker guitar rhythms in there as well. Was that uh, intentional to kind of keep some of that classic sound? Yeah, it was. I mean, and, and always is when we make a record. I mean, there is a signature striper sound, uh, like it or not, love it or hate it. Um, it's it's a sound that I spent, gosh, years mm-hmm. trying to achieve yeah. and create, you know, and I stumbled upon it. I, I wanted that. I, I was really fascinated with the Boston sound sure. when I heard it. Uh, but being in a hard rock slash metal band, I wanted basically that kind of a sound, but but more in your face and and more metal, for lack of a better term. And I wound up purchasing a Lab Series head and preamping out of that into a Marshall, and that's uh, that's when and where the striper uh, tone was birthed. Uh, and we've been preamping heads like that. We we went down to a smaller scale and wound up going with the Furman PQ3. Okay. We found out years later, you know, guys like, believe it or not, Dimebag were influenced by the tone and wound up doing mm-hmm. the same thing we did. Yeah, and it's kind of neat because when I listened to, to your sound in the day, I, I could feel a little bit of Randy Rhodes in it. Maybe that was inadvertent, but or, or maybe it was the style of no, guitar. No, no, there, there is definitely, you know, that's an influence. I mean, Randy's yeah. 
probably one of my biggest influences as a guitar player. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not even close to being anywhere near the same level he is as a player, but you know, he's a big influence of mine and I think you can kind of in my style you can you can possibly hear a little bit at that at yeah. times. The yeah. other guy is Eddie Van Halen. He was a big influence of mine too. Yeah. And, and speaking of, of those two influences, the track on Blackened, uh, one of the or I'm sorry, Blackened. Um did you do that solo, or is that Oz? Or, or I, I did that solo, and I did the solo on Bleeding from Inside Out. So the two new tracks, I, okay. I played the solos on. Yeah, because the, the, the Blackened track, that solo really pops. And uh, I was curious if that was you know, you or Oz. I mean, neither one of you were a slouch on guitar, so it, it could have been either way. It's always funny. Cause, um, over the years, I, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's a fine line of it coming across almost as egotistical. Mm-hmm. But I've been kind of on this mission... I don't really know why. I can't tell you. I guess because I've I felt like I haven't gotten the credit as a guitarist over the years because I'm a singer. Sure. And a lot of people just assume I like there's a bunch of comments on Facebook saying everything sounds great, Michael, the vocals, Tim this and on blackened and bleeding, Oz, you killed those so and I'm just thinking they just assume yeah. he played those solos, you know? Yeah. And and it's it's a lot of people don't know that I I'm a guitarist first. I mean I I was a guitar player before I was a singer. We were actually a trio for years mm-hmm. uh, before we had a, a, a another guitarist in the band. So you know I enjoy playing, man. I really do. Yeah. Now you you started playing really early, didn't you? You were pretty young when you picked up guitar. I started playing. I mean, if you want to consider it playing, I, when I was five. I mean, okay. learning chords. Well, hey, that's. Getting really serious about like learning how to play solos, uh, that was more around the age of eleven, uh, okay. slash twelve years old. Yeah. Now, when did when and how did you discover the voice? Though, I mean that that I mean you're you're correct. I mean people when they they hear your name, you think of you know the the wailing vocals that you know I must say even on these new versions of these songs you don't disappoint. You're not taking these down, you know, and singing them in a lower register like a lot of you know, artists of that era did. I mean, when did you... Trying, trying not to. They're in the same key, the original key, but obviously my voice has gotten a little deeper through the years. Yeah. And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I hope it's not. I think sometimes I listen to the old tracks and I think I, my voice is a little too on the high side. Yeah. Uh, and I almost sound like a, like a girl. I know that's signature striper, but I'm digging the newer tracks with the deeper tone. Yeah. You know? It's got to be maybe a little bit, you know, more relaxing to sing at that. But it, it does. And if it's more, I mean, if you went to a striper show right now, that's how we're going to sound. Mm-hmm. You know, now, um, did our you, sound has changed a little bit. So Did you go in, in, in you know, obviously you've had a pretty long career at this. Did you at some point get formal training is the ability to, to maintain this voice as so you didn't blow it out? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I before um uh before Striper. So back when we were a band called uh we started out as Firestorm and then became Aftermath and then we went on to Rocks R O X X and then mm-hmm. that evolved into Rocks Regime. Mm-hmm. And during that period, during the Rocks into Rocks Regime period, um I started really wanting to improve my my instrument, being my voice. Sure. And I started working really hard at that. Now, I didn't have a high range. I didn't have a high scream. I never screamed. Mm-hmm. And I had a real fast vibrato. And if you had heard me back then, you wouldn't even believe it was me, uh, comparing it to today's Michael Sweet. And 
So I really worked hard on slowing my vibrato down. Unfortunately, it wound up getting a little too heavy and a little too slow. But uh, And I worked on my range and developing a scream, a signature scream. And, and I worked and I worked and I worked. And I finally found a place where it was real easy for me to do that. And the only lessons I wound up going eventually and having was with a woman by the name of Elizabeth Sabine. Okay. And we took vocal lessons with her as a group. Okay. And she worked with us as a group, and she definitely helped me to learn how to breathe better and sustain my voice. Because thank God, I don't, I can't tell you how this happened, but I go and get my voice checked uh, once a year, and they scope me and they look at my cords. I right. go to the Mass Voice Center. They worked on Tyler and Pavarotti and Julie Andrews, and they compare my the pictures of my voice on a screen, and my vocal cords haven't changed. Uh, since uh, the first time I went to them was in 08. Okay, so you're still uh, so I have no nose. I've had no surgery. So I'm I'm really fortunate that I haven't had those kinds of issues like a lot of singers have, you know? Yeah, I know. In, in talking to like Don Dawkins, for example, you know, there's, you know, I had issues with sleep apnea that was affecting his voice. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, and then, and then you get like someone like yourself or, or Doro Pesh or somebody that just kind of naturally is able to do it, um, you know, with obviously warming up properly and, and, you know, paying attention to breathing and things like that. Well, you know, I don't, that's the funny thing. I don't warm up properly. I do pay attention to breathing and I try not to blow my voice out and I try mm-hmm. to sing properly, but I, I never warm up. <laughs> oh, you're, just, you're just one of those annoying people that can do it then. Okay. Well, you know, it, I, it's, I find that sometimes it, it, it has an opposite effect on me. Yeah. Sometimes when I warm up too much, I actually have a tougher time getting through the set. Yeah. Yeah, I can see you kind of tire the muscles out. Yeah, if I do it too much. So I'll just do, a little, you know, 10 minutes of exercise and whatnot, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's that's probably wise. Now, you have been, uh, you know, for those following you on Twitter especially, you've, you've made some remarks about a, a forthcoming autobiography. Can you talk a little bit about the, where that is in the process? Yeah, it's in editing. Okay. It was a really, really tedious task. I mean, we wound up, I was interviewed for almost 16 hours. Okay. Then it was transcribed by a ghostwriter, a friend of mine, Doug Van Pelt. So he's not really a ghostwriter. And um, he sent us uh, his version of the book, and it just wasn't quite where it should have been. Okay. So we wound up, over the past year, basically drawing from what he did and rewriting the book. Okay. Problem is... I'm a working musician. I'm out touring and yeah. traveling and recording, and it it made it next to impossible. Yeah, he's got to try to get you in between sessions and shows. Yeah, and... it was it was really hard. So, uh, with the help of my manager Dave Rose, he and I, between the two of us, we wound up retweaking and rewriting the book, and we just finished it. Yeah, you know, no. it's uh, it's going to be probably about a almost a 400 page plus, maybe even more than that. Okay. Uh, it's almost 40,000 words, uh, and it's like 40 chapters. Uh, I've got a bunch of quotes from a lot of people, from Dave Mustaine to well, you know, cool. Eddie Trunk, and it's really cool, man. It's going to be it's going to be a great book. Great. And do you have a publisher lined up for that already? And no, it's an interesting it's an interesting deal. I signed a deal with Big Three Records okay. to release my book and my record. Oh, okay. Okay, and they've been talking with a number of publishers about the book. So it will be published, obviously, but we haven't secured that yet. And and the only reason for that is because it's just now being finished. Right. 
So. Awesome. Now, how was that process to kind of look back, you know, I mean, quoting kind of one of your lyrics, looking back at your life uh, and kind of, you know, putting it down in, in, well, not into paper necessarily, but, you know, even doing the interviews. How was that process? Is that obviously tedious, but, I mean, was it painful at any point, or were there parts you look back and kind of wince when you look at... It was. It, it was painful at times. It was uh, happy at times. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, regretful at times. Sure. I mean, looking back on certain periods of our careers uh, in the band, and I look back and think, oh, would have, could have, should have, you know? Yeah. Um, you were not supposed to live like that. We're supposed to move on and not repeat the same mistakes twice. But, you know, still, the, we just, there was a lot of stupidity in the band and ignorance and, um, I just think back and think, wow, I just wish we were uh, as mature as we are now, uh, you know, back then. Yeah, yeah. It it is always uh, kind of interesting to look. I think anybody, if they took themselves and looked back at it, you know, there's a lot of times where you're going to scratch your head at decisions you made and things like that. But, I mean, exactly, exactly. You know, by and large, you're you're still here, you're still doing it, um, you know, which is tremendous. You know, after, I mean, you guys have been at this, what, 30, almost 30 years? 30 years uh, this year. Actually. Okay. We, we started uh, officially as Striper in 83. So, yeah. And we released our first album in 84. Okay. So that'll be the 30-year anniversary of our first release next year. But, I mean, and then if you want to add the years prior to that as, you know, Rock's Regime doing demos and mm-hmm. playing Paris and the Troubadour and all that, that, that goes back to, like, 1980. Okay. You know? 1979. Great. So the new album comes out uh, March 22nd, I believe, in the U.S.? If, if it comes right. out 26th uh, in oh, the okay. 22nd in other parts of the world. Oh, uh, those Europeans. Okay. And then um, you guys are doing um, one of those cruise, uh, metal cruise-type shows in um, late March, but then um, do you guys have plans to do you know, Europe, the States? What, what's We're not that? doing Europe, as far as I know, unless some offer comes... Uh, you know, before us, and and we decide to do that. But our plans are to go to Europe next year and tour aggressively to do a lot of the festivals and do a ground tour. We just hired an agency there that's setting that up right now. Uh, we are going to be doing some other uh, one-off dates this year, quite a few actually. Okay. You know, we might do Australia, Korea, Japan, uh, and a handful of other dates. Possibly go back to South America, which we just did some U.S. dates as well, but we're making a new record starting in April. We'll be working on that until uh, the end of May. Okay. And then we'll tour from June to September. I'm going to be touring with uh, TNN, which is Dawkins Guys Without yeah. Dawn. Awesome. I'm doing that. And um, and then I'll uh, Striper will be making another live uh, album of our rehearsals. Okay. With the live audience. Oh, that's that's an interesting way to do it. So it's going to be different. We're going to do that in November. Okay, that'll be very cool to see. And that's interesting about the TNN. That'll be a, it's good. It's kind of a neat fit. That'd yeah, I think I think it is a good fit because I, I mean I'm a melodic rock. You know, that's what I cut my teeth on, and that's right down my alley. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm not uncomfortable at all. Uh, when when somebody asks me, you know, how do you feel about doing the TNN thing? I'm, it's like, yeah, it, it's a no-brainer to me. Plus, I 
I've gotten to know George very well. We've done a lot of shows together, Striper and Lynch Mob, and sure. uh, we hit it off. He's a great guy. Jeff Pilson, he and I have, have spoken and met and follow each other on Twitter, and he's a great guy. Yeah, fantastic yeah. singer in his own right. So oh, yeah. Yeah, really cool. Great. And their new, new album is phenomenal, so that would be really cool to see. Yeah, it's going to be cool, man. It's going to be it's going to be a good time. Yeah, it'll be a fun. All right. Hey, I appreciate it so much, and hopefully we'll see you guys come through uh Pittsburgh market sooner than later, and we'll get to check this stuff out. Absolutely, man. And thank you, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, buddy. I oh. appreciate it. Sorry about the dog barking. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have one myself. No problem. You take okay. care. Thank All right, you. Buddy, take care. Bye. Bye. Land Shark Lager and Margaritaville Tequila present Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band. How many people want to see songs from St. Somewhere Tour? Thursday, July 18th, First Niagara Pavilion. One night only. It's five o'clock somewhere. Tickets on sale now at Ticketmaster.com. All Ticketmaster outlets are charged by phone. Don't miss Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band. Presented by Margaritaville Tequila and Landshark Locker. Have you ever listened to an album and thought to yourself, man, I could do so much better than that? Well, here's your chance. My name is Sue, and I've decided to write my next album live and online at RageAndApathy.com. So come on over, leave me a comment, and tell me what you think about the album and where you think it should go. And as a bonus for you Iron City rockers out there, I will give you an exclusive copy of the first song as soon as I get it finished. So stop on over to RageAndApathy.com and join my madness. All right, again, a big thanks to Michael Sweet of the band Striper. Uh, their album Second Coming is available now for Amazon.com for I think a lousy ten bucks, uh, so you can pick that up. Uh, well worth it. Uh, if you're not a, a big fan of Striper, I suggest you go back and listen to like Soldiers Under Command. Uh, obviously, uh, I think everybody who was alive in the late 1980s was familiar with the track Honestly, which I have to give them big props for not even including on Second Coming. Um, it's a band that really had some killer riffs. Whether you're uh, pro-Christian, anti-Christian, some really good melodic hard rock, call it glam metal, uh, from that era that often got overlooked because I think a lot of people thought it wasn't cool to listen to Striper, but uh, really good stuff to go back and listen to. Can't recommend it enough. And the new album, I think, is really, really cool as well. And the new tracks are good. Uh, The guitar playing is phenomenal. Uh, So well worth the 10 bucks. And as you know, with Amazon, you got to spend 25 bucks to get yourself free shipping. So Add to your cart the documentary Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet. We're going to talk right now to Jesse Vile, who was the producer of the movie. Where did the idea come from? How hard was it to get the ball rolling? How hard was it to talk Jason's family into becoming a part of this film? And what were his takeaways from the film? I don't know if a lot of people have seen it. Unfortunately, it did not get a theatrical release in in Pittsburgh, where it did uh, do a lot of other major metropolitan areas, and I know it did a lot of film festivals. Uh, so we kind of got overlooked, but it is available on uh, Amazon and on jasonbeckermovie.com. You can buy the DVD, which includes a boatload of extra features, which Jesse and I will talk about in the interview. So really a, a great cause, an incredible film. If you're a person, whether you're a guitarist, uh, any kind of musician, the story is inspiring. Uh, to see what Jason has accomplished with what life has dealt him is, is just awe-inspiring. So... Uh, really felt strongly uh, about this and, and reached out to Jesse, and he was very agreeable to do the interview. So I was delighted to have him on the show. And I, I hope that all of you support his work. Uh, again, Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet, is the film. Let's talk to Jesse. We'll take you in with a little bit of Jason from his hand. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Iron City Rocks producer Jesse Vile. How are you doing, Jesse? Uh, yeah, good, thanks. Hey, um, you have uh, produced a motion picture documentary that uh, I think is of interest to a lot of our listeners, uh, a film called Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet. Uh, for those not quite up to snuff on Jason Becker, he was uh, a shrapnel Mike Varney uh, guitar player. He played in a duo with uh, Marty Friedman called Cacophony. Uh, back in the 80s, and then went on to land the role of Steve Vai's replacement in the David Lee Roth band before contracting ALS, more commonly Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and you have uh, made an incredible documentary on that. Can I just first start out, how did you uh, first become aware of Jason and his... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a guitar player myself, and okay. it was... Um Years and years ago, I had a guitar teacher when I was about 15, 16, who uh, was, you know, I was really into Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and, and kind of guys who, um, you know, played the guitar that way and, and, you know, played very guitar-centric music. And, um, and uh, he just introduced me to a few new guys, uh, and Cacophony and Marty and Jason, they were uh, some... Yeah, they were they were some of the guys he introduced me to, and I, I immediately gravitated toward their music, and uh, and especially Jason's, just because mm-hmm. it it just blew me away that someone so young, because I mean that that first B metal symphony album, Cacophony, he's only sixteen years old, mm-hmm. and uh, Perpetual Burn, he's only seventeen, going on eighteen. So he yeah. was. Uh, it, it just blew me away that somebody that young could not only be be able to play music like that, but also to be able to write music like that. Because that, uh, uh, of, of a lot of the shred, you know, quote-unquote shred, neoclassical metal, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, f- for all the speed, you know, speed playing, guitar playing, his, to me, had just so much emotion and, and drama. And, uh, and I just couldn't believe it was coming out of a, of a 17-year-old kid. You know, here I am, like 16, 17, yeah. and I'm like, you know, this, this, this is unbelievable. Uh, what was this, what this guy's doing? And then when I heard about more about his story and the fact that he was this young, amazing kid who, who, who you know, was diagnosed with this really horrible disease at such a young age, at the brink of, you know, being the biggest guitarist in the world, and and then continuing to go on and, and write music and with his eyes. I mean, it was just, you know what I mean? It's just one of those stories where you can't even believe it. And, right. uh, it just stuck with me over the years. And, uh, I, I eventually got around to, to making it. Yeah. Now you, um, were you a, a filmmaker by trade prior to this? Did you do yeah, other documentaries? I went to film school and, um, you know, then I've been working, I moved to, I'm originally from Philadelphia, and then I, I moved to, uh, to to London about nine years ago to and got worked in the film industry here and did did some producing. But uh, this is my first feature directing, mm-hmm. uh, so it was uh, kind of a big learning curve for me. This film. Yeah. Now, when you first had, I mean, you had this idea for this this documentary. I mean, did you reach out to the family, or how did that uh, kind of how did you kind of make their acquaintance? Well, um, yeah, definitely. I, I essentially, I um, 
I got in touch with with Jason through his his father Gary. Actually, I, I didn't want to just you know I couldn't find an email or a number for Jason. Um, right. The only thing was a PO box or you know, and I, I didn't want to go through there and get it lost in the pile. So I knew his I tracked down his dad. His dad has a website and uh, sent the you know sent an email through to his father who um, actually. Jason's mother, Pat, is the one who also handles Gary's stuff. But anyway, so yeah, so that's, and they just wrote back about a week later and just saying that, hey, it's a really nice idea, but, you know, people people have tried in the past, it's a lot of work for us, and they weren't really sure, so I had to kind of convince them. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's one of the things that struck me about the film, uh, you know, was his parents' involvement, uh, you know, as his primary caretaker and, and things like that. And it must have been very, a very difficult situation uh, to say, yes, we're going to allow cameras and, and, you know, the kind of publicity um, into what is a very personal thing. So that, that uh, it is one of the things I think that makes the, the film very special is that you really get a sense for what his parents uh, and, you know, you had his uh, former fiance and you know, what their existence is in dealing with this disease. That's a very special part of the thing of the film. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, I mean, that, that's a big part of his, of his life. I mean, he's, you know, you can't kind of separate the two, uh, you know, Jason and the people around him, because mm-hmm. the people around him, uh, they're his, literally, they're his voice. Um, I mean, he communicates through his eyes, so they, they speak, I mean, you know, they speak for him, you know, and that's his community. They're they're literally keeping him alive. So, uh, and, and you know, it's not just stuff they do for him; it's stuff he does for them as well. And uh, it's 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 a real community, you know. It, it went. It's a film about an individual uh, that then turns into a, a film about a community out of you know just, and that's just the way. It, it wasn't any kind of clever writing or anything. I mean, that, that's just the way that it is. So to kind of not, not include that as a major part of the film would have just been not correct and yeah. uh, doing the film a disservice. Or yeah, I think another thing that, that at least my perspective, because I know uh, I just had a conversation with someone on Facebook uh, the other day who had said they ordered the DVD and, and were getting a box of Kleenex ready. And, and I replied back and I said, you know, that that's really the kind of the interesting thing about this film because... I didn't walk away, uh, you know, obviously you, you sympathize with the condition that he's with, but I don't think the way you portrayed it, or, or maybe it's Jason's spirit, but I didn't walk away from that film feeling so much pity, but, but just purely inspiration, because, you know, it doesn't seem like he's sitting around moping about it, to, you know, maybe that's just my take, or, or was that something you intended when, when you did the film? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you know, when I contacted him, I spent a lot of, I mean, I live in London and he lives in California, so it was very, you know, it couldn't, and I didn't have any money, so I couldn't really go out there and spend time with him before making the film. So a lot of, a lot of getting to know each other took place over email and, and phone and, you know, the telephone and things like that. And I mean, basically, had we made the film 20 years ago, 22 years ago, it would have been a whole different story. You know, it would have been, it would have been a, a very sad film. It would have been a right. film, a family completely torn apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've, they've been through it and they, they now all deal with it in a different way. So, 
Jason pretty much said, you know, I, I don't want the film to be sad. And, um, and you know, once you kind of... And then you have a look at the family and the fact that, you know, uh, they're all artists and creative people and, and, and they're all inspiring people in themselves... It would have been effort to make it a sad film, actually, because yeah. it's just not, that's just not the vibe that we got. And I mean, look, you know, they're not like perfect and happy 100 percent of the time. I can't imagine. Yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, they have their ups and downs as well. But I think, yeah, how we made the film 20 years ago it would have been a very, very different story. Yeah. And, and that's I mean, I think anybody who has children or a niece or a nephew can really empathize with the parents, you know, because, I mean, they, they seemed so supportive, you know, and that was one of the things about the film. This isn't just, you know, minute one, Jason's sick. You, you do a very nice job of, of, you know, kind of filling people in on the backstory. So if, you, if you're listening to this and you're not, you know, an aficionado on Jason Becker, uh, the film does a very good job, I think, of painting the picture of, you know, kind of the roller coaster ride he went on before this. But, uh, you know, his parents seemed incredibly supportive of his career uh, professionally. You know, the obvious hesitation, you know, you know, my boy's going to go off and be with David Lee Roth and kind of stuff like that. But then, you know, to see what it's done to their life since and what they've made of it. I mean, it's, it, that touches, I think, anybody who has children, which is a neat thing. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of this footage you, you worked with, I'm assuming a lot of the, the, the Becker family home movies and stuff like that, is that... So I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of editing that went into that, a lot of work. Oh, absolutely. Um, we were very fortunate that uh, Jason's uncle, Gar um, Uncle Ron, who's the guy in the beginning of the film uh, with Jason, they're playing guitar on the couch. Yeah, together. screwing around, yeah. That's a fun... Yeah. Um, he, he's... You know, he took a ton of photos and and shot lots of uh, eight mil film and and then video later when that, when that came out. So we were really fortunate to have lots of stuff to choose from. I mean, I wanted a lot more, obviously. Sure. Uh, the thing that is really missing from not just from the film but from the world itself is is uh, interview footage of Jason. I, you know, had he had he made the tour with David Lee Roth, there would have been a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of one thing I, I, I wanted Jason to be able to tell more of the story. I wanted people to be able to get an idea of who Jason was through the archive before mm -hmm. bringing him into the film. And, um, so yeah, we had, we had a ton of archive to choose from, but I definitely wanted more. I definitely wanted more of it. Yeah. That, I mean, if this, if his career, you know, if you had fast forwarded 20 years, uh, and, and Jason had made his debut in, you know, the, the early 2000s, you would even probably have way, way, way more footage to deal with. But unfortunately, you know, I don't know. Did, um, did Cacophony do much of a tour in the U.S.? Really? It looked like they were just kind of in a van driving around doing dates and things like that. They, uh, I think they, they had a tour in Japan. They went to Japan once. Okay. Uh, in the U.S., uh, they they went up and down California. That's where they're okay. all from. Uh, well, where they were, you know, playing out of. Uh, I think they did a little bit in the Midwest. Okay. They had a a, sh a couple shows in the Midwest. I don't think they ever made it out east. Yeah, I know. Even you know, as a kid getting these albums, I mean, quite honestly, no, no Mr. Varney's not listening, but you know, we were getting a dub tape of a dub tape of a dub tape. You know, with the Greg Howells and the Cacophony right. and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and you coveted it. You know, I felt like the you know the Russian kids when they would get the Scorpions albums, when you would get the shrapnel stuff, um, because it was so amazing. But yeah. yeah. Um, now, when you when you started uh, to do the film, I mean, can you take us through the process? I mean, you came. Did you just kind of knock all the 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 recent footage out in a short period of time? You mentioned you being in London, or how long did the process take? It was about four months altogether. Okay. I would say um, the actual, you know, actual editing. I mean, there's like technical stuff you have to do as well. But I mean, the actual putting everything together, it was about four months spread out over just under, uh, spread out over about 10 months, eight, okay. nine to 10 months. Yeah. And did you interact uh, one-on-one with Jason a lot during that period? During the editing period? Well, uh, I mean, even during the filming, I mean, it was... I mean, how much you know, hands-on time were you allotted? Oh, right. I mean, well, we, you know, we, I spoke with him a lot in in the in the um, development phase of it. You know, before we ever shot anything, just because I needed to get an idea of the story, and and also, I, I basically just asked him who were the most important characters in your life, and then I got in touch with them, and then sussed out who would be the best people to speak to to kind of chart this mm-hmm. his life. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely had a lot, a lot of uh, contact with Jason. And then we were actually shooting. We were there over his place pretty much uh, every day. So, uh, yeah, we, we got to uh, – and, and, you know, and then in the um, post-production as well, not as much, but he definitely, you know, had a look at the rough cut and things like that. Uh, I mean, it was never – it, it was never like his his film to to cut or anything like that. Right. But I definitely wanted him and his family's involvement from um, the standpoint where I just wanted to make sure I was telling their story sure. truthfully. Yeah. As far as uh, you, you had a lot of I don't know if you would call them cameos, but you, you got some you know uh, video of, of Joe Satriani and Steve Vai and Marty Friedman. Obviously, I mean, were those hard to track down or, or did you know just kind of say what you're doing and the doors were wide open yeah it was it was pretty wide open I, I think um, originally I had a whole long long list of, of guitar players you know that either were friends of Jason's had worked with Jason were influenced by Jason guys like Jeff Loomis mm-hmm. um, uh, you know um, Chris from Megadeth Chris Broderick and uh, I mean, Steve Morse. I mean, I, I spoke to a ton of guys and even interviewed a couple other guys that didn't make mm-hmm. it in the film. And because it just, I decided I didn't kind of want to make that kind of film. You know, I, I didn't want too many characters and I wanted the people in the film to be as, you know, close to Jason. I mean, yes. Steve Vai and Joe, Joe, they're not close to him, but Steve Vai was important because it was good to get his. Uh, his kind of insight into the whole David Lee Roth scene. Yeah. And uh, and also, he's worked with Jason a, c- a couple times. He helped Jason with his first fundraiser back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. He, um, you know, he's he, he worked on a song for Jason's last album collection that came out in 2008. And Joe, the same. He, he's worked, he worked with Jason on that album, and also he was playing at his um, benefit gig. Right. The next day, so it just seemed those guys seemed relevant uh, to, to Jason's story, and and the fact that Joe was 
uh, playing guitar in the San Francisco area and that whole scene. Sure. Um, so but I think, no, Steve was pretty, that was pretty easy. Marty was definitely easy because he, you know, yeah. him and Jason are like brothers. So that was, sure. and, you know, and he's part of the story uh, more so than anyone, uh, you know, music wise. And, um, and Joe, I mean, Joe took a bit of convincing. He, he at first, he, he didn't want to do it mainly because he didn't feel that he was that relevant to the story. Uh, but then yeah. when I, well, that, but you know, then when I explained to him what we were doing, he then he, you know totally sure. understood, and I'm, I'm now hopefully I'm you know he's glad that he took part. Sure. Now, um, did you get a sense? I mean, the one thing that I found kind of odd in, in the film, and not of the film, but that there was one picture in existence with uh, Jason and David Lee Roth. Uh, did you get a sense for how much Jason really got to interact with David? During the you know the, the, his tenure in the you know quote band, I mean, was it something that Dave just kind of popped in, did what he did, and somebody else kind of called the shots, or, or he um yeah he worked with Dave a lot. Okay. Uh, you know, apparently Dave was very hands on. Okay. And, uh, and you know knows a ton about music and and obviously how to cut a record and things like that. So, I mean, him and Dave wrote um, two songs together. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, I think he was very much involved in the process. I mean, Dave had a vision for it, and then, uh, you know, from what I gathered from Jason, and, you know, obviously guided the, the project forward. Sure. Um, Did you talk to Dave for, for the film at all? I mean, was there ever a, the consideration to get his involvement? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I spoke to his, um, his manager or his agent, and uh, she basically said that he hasn't. He basically doesn't just doesn't do interviews anymore. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I begged and pleaded and just yeah. to try to get you know say hey, but this is different, you know. And uh, she sent off the request, and I never heard from her. So I, you know, I got back in touch with her, and she just said, you know, you know, be, you know, pleading with her to you know try to pressure him to. Uh, do it and she was just you know obviously couldn't so sure yeah i understand he wasn't in the film in the end but but i'm actually i think it was better that he wasn't yeah you don't certainly don't want to be upstaged you know by the you know the star power there yeah but also it feels like had he been in it that jason's dream would have been that much more tangible and and i feel like uh as intangible his dream could be the better because it just uh not only does it is it so um Unbelievable! He could he could score a dream like that, but then the, unbelievable that the, the dream was then taken away from him and, and gone forever. So I think to have Dave come in would have been maybe too tangible for the audience in terms mm-hmm. of the dream. I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but it's uh, no. I think I think you're 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 saying it very well. I mean, it it, it does make sense. Um, now the reception of the film. Obviously, you've done very well in, with it in the uh, you know kind of the film festival community that are probably way beyond uh, you know what a lot of us guitar fans care about. I'm sure there's a filmmaker they make a lot to make uh, you know you're very proud. Um, the DVD uh, obviously in in the area that I'm at, as I said off off interview there, we we didn't get a chance to see the film in a theater, but the the film is available now via DVD, uh, Amazon. JasonBeckerMovie.com. Can you talk a little bit about what else is on the DVD? Uh, yeah, so um, we have lots of uh, footage of Jason. Um, 
performing in his cacophony days and also just at home with his uncle Ron filming. Uh, there's, there's one of him. Um, actually, you know what? Let me grab it. Sure. Have a quick. Yeah, so there's, um, well, there's extended interviews. So basically, we put the whole interview of uh, that we did with Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, and Marty Friedman. Because obviously, we couldn't fit. I mean, we filmed Marty for an hour and a half or something. Or it, it was, it, no, it was probably about an hour. And Steve and Joe, about a half an hour. And um, they say a lot of really interesting things. Not just about Jason, but Steve, especially about the 80s and being a rock star and yeah, uh, Joe Satriani about the you know the '80s and and you know the whole San Francisco scene. So um, they just had a lot of really great stuff to say. So we included that. Um, there's also you know Jason doing his yo-yo thing and playing <laughs> you know Paganini's Fifth Caprice and uh, so there's there's lots of really good stuff on it. Yeah, and it looks you have a uh, is there there's also a feature out on uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. On there as well. Yeah, and there's also something about his. Um, Jason's dad did uh, drew an uh, drew something that we then had animated, and it, it sort of uh, explains in more detail what what ALS is. Okay. Yeah, which is good, and I think that's you know important. You know, it's it's not unfortunately not a rare disease as we like, but um, you know that's great. So the the movie um, is there. You know, just for the folks that want to help the cause, is there a better place to get the movie? I mean, is the website, the Jason Becker movie, probably the best place as far as revenue? Yeah, that that has the best link uh, for people to go to. I mean, ultimately, people will probably find for the, you know, the the cheapest price they can, and and that's fine. I I mean, it's, uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if people just, Go to jasonbeckermovie.com. That's kind of the uh, the authority on uh, on the movie. Okay. And do you have um, personally, uh, you know, what's kind of next on your agenda? Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to develop more films, and I mean, there's nothing set in stone yet to okay. or really announce, but uh, okay. Yeah. Try right. new stuff. Sure. Jesse, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Again, jasonbeckermovie.com. Get yourself the DVD. Uh, a really a great watch. A very inspiring story. Uh, so I want to thank you, Jesse. Great. Thanks. Uh, thank you. And, um, yeah, it was fun. But it's coming together. together. Sticks. Mario Speedwagon. Ted Newton. Come take a ride on the Midwest Rock and Roll Express. May 19th at First Niagara Pavilion. Tickets on sale now at LiveNation.com or Ticketmaster Outlets. All right, again, thank you to Jesse Vile, uh, movie producer of Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet, Michael Sweet of Striper. Uh, Striper just did uh, the Monsters of Rock cruise. I know they're going to be doing a lot of dates in the... Uh, coming year i've got i believe they just uh, kind of announced on twitter or facebook uh, just recently that they plan on doing another album this year and then having another album in 2014 so uh it's interesting to see a band i mean they, they were obviously usually popular with to hell with the devil specifically because of the success of the ballad honestly but um 
looking at them in 2013, I think they might be just as successful as they were prior to honestly uh, kind of breaking them wide open. But um, you know, it's interesting to see because a phenomenal band, Michael's voice is, is as strong as ever. His guitar playing is fantastic. So again, check Striper out and, and please support JasonBeckerMovie.com. Uh, the DVD, uh, a great you know gift for you know a guitar player in your life or, or one you want to pick up. It's it's definitely not a renter. It's a go buy it. Uh, again, so we want to thank you. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash Iron City Rocks, ironcityrocks.com, twitter.com forward slash Iron City Rocks. Uh, you can email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We are also part of the Cast Iron Ring, which is castironring.com, which features uh, eight of the coolest uh, hard rock and metal and music related podcasts on the net. Uh, if you have an iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch, you can go to the iTunes App Store, get Iron City Rocks Connect, and also search for Cast Iron Ring. Both are free apps. We'd appreciate you snagging those, leaving a review. Leaving a review on the podcast would be great on in the iTunes Music Store. Just search for Iron City Rocks and, and give us a couple stars and a, a, say what you think of the show. We'd appreciate it. Uh, we respond to any and all feedback. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, you know, Comments, criticisms, uh, you just be honest, and we would appreciate it. Uh, we invite you to come back next time. We have something very cool in store for you in Episode 194, and we thank you for listening to Episode 193. We'll talk to you soon.